Today's program was brought to you by the Nutritional Therapy Association, real education for people who believe in real food. For more information, visit nutritionaltherapy.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew, where we serve a weekly menu of industry commentary based on what the market has to offer. I'm Andrew Friedman from Tokeland.com. I'm Jimmy Bradley from The Red Cat. And today we are introducing a new uh, recurring feature uh, on the show. Uh, we've had a number of guests, Jimmy, in this first season. This is our 11th episode, um, who were just, you know, we love all our guests, but certain guests were just so good on air. Uh, and we thought, well, why don't we try to periodically get some of these people to come back? And we it's not the most inventive name, but we're calling it the Chef's Council. And uh, we've asked about about a dozen of our guests uh, who have consented to come on when they can. Uh, and this is going to be our first Chef's Council episode. Yeah, very exciting. And... Um, we have in the studio with us today Amanda Cohen from Dirt Candy in New York City, uh, Mike Gibney, author of Sous Chef, and currently in the kitchen at La Turtle in New York City, and Gabe McMacken, chef owner of The Finch in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome all. Um, we won't get into the entire list of council members, but uh, Marco Canora, uh, Gavin Kazin, Alex Raj, among many others. It's a great list. And uh, again, these are just people who we're going to have come in for a roundtable conversations. Today's what we refer to as an all-shop talk episode. There, we really didn't have a huge story this week that we felt the need to dissect. Um, but, um, you know, we may not... Uh, well, we may technically be there in the calendar here in New York. We may not... Uh, in reality, be there uh, on the farms or on the plate or in the kitchen. Um, but we feel like everyone's kind of ready for spring, Jimmy. Yeah, I know I am. Um, and I should say, we're having a day today. I was driving here and coming over a bridge in Brooklyn, and I could have sworn I was almost in like San Francisco or something. It's going to be 70 degrees today, and it's just, it, it certainly feels like it. Uh, and, you know, Jimmy and I were talking, we've really. Uh, kind of are very clear about this show when we started it and we always like to say we're a chef show not a food show Um, and we try to talk about you know things uh, industry topics and things like that but obviously you can't divorce food from chefs I mean yeah why would you want to to put it mildly so today we're just going to kind of geek out on on spring ingredients spring cooking kind of what spring means to people because in our experience, as we were talking about this show, there's, uh, I, for me, most chefs I know, spring is definitely one, their favorite season, a uh, season that really gets them excited, the anticipation of it, um, uh, these sort of ingredients that kind of have these very short lifespans, uh, you know, that kind of make them a little more special. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's a new ingredients after a, a long winter. Everybody wants something new to play with. So. Yeah. So with that, I guess... Um, Amanda, since you have a vegetarian restaurant here in New York, um, can we talk about for you? I mean, first of all, is is spring even your favorite season? I don't want to choose a season. <laughs> I feel like the other seasons will hate me if I choose one. Um, I'm not sure we're in spring yet, though. I like to call it sprinter. You know, we're still That's half good. winter, right? half spring. Uh, we don't really have four definite seasons, really. You know, like 
there's like eight, 16, there are these tiny little patches of time. Uh, it is fun to sort of come out of the winter months and start to see new things in the green market, new things from our purveyors. Uh, it is a nice time. I'm not sure if it's my favorite. Probably, actually, that period uh, between summer and fall is when you sort of get everything all at once. And you feel like, oh, there's this bountiful harvest. But it is nice. When you say everything at once, you mean because you still sort of have all that late summer yeah. stuff, and also you kind of have one toe in sort of the autumnal... Exactly. It's when you sort of still see strawberries and butternut squash at the same time in the market. Right. And that's very, very fleeting. Right. Uh, Gabe, how about for you? What's your, uh, what's your feelings about this season that we're about to fall into? Uh, similarly, I think... You can use this sprinter. is still yeah sprinter. <laughs> I mean, we're still very much in winter time. You know, when you go to the green market, you can start to see a little bit of ramps coming up. Um, but we're really still in root crops. You know, we're still really radishes. carrots and radishes yeah. and turnips and things that are not going to. Um, they're months old. They've been sitting in somebody's cellar. Um, the challenge is how to make that feel lighter. You know, nobody really wants a braise anymore. Nobody wants to have things that are really rich. And um, so, you feel like your customers are already sort of mentally there. I mean, transitioning. Yeah, everybody's checked out in winter. I mean, call it cabin fever, call it what you want, but people are really excited for things that feel lighter. So, we're doing broths, we're doing things that are, are have more energy, but um, we're not yet ready for for peas. We're not asparagus. We're not those kinds of things. We're still on things that are carrots and. Um, that are just feel that feel lighter. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just going to say, I think um, the good part about spring for me is that you start to get things on the plate that have been um, less adulterated, you know, with the braises, you know, you think radishes, you braise them in the winter, uh, but then you start shaving them and serving them with like a sort of lemon, lemon balm or something like that as the spring comes in. And I think, you know, having that, less adulterated item on the plate, even if it is a vegetable from the winter, is when you start to really feel like it's becoming spring. For me as a chef, like creatively, that's when that's when you start to think enough with the heavily adult heavy adulteration of the ingredients, enough with the braises, the purees, let's start to just put whole things on the plate and treat them delicately and, and just appreciate them for what they are. Right. Crunchy. Um, things that are like <laughs> that have like a bite to them too. The the other thing that I mean, you, Amanda mentioned that you know the the late summer into um, fall is this great bounty. I think also like in, in restaurants, it's fear. You know, I'm I'm terrified <laughs> of springtime. <laughs> like, what the hell are we gonna do when we have all of this new stuff? How do you mean? What do you mean by that exactly? Like, what What are we going to do with all of these great ingredients? How are we going to give them the respect that they're due? How are we going to make something that um, is exciting for us to cook, um, that is exciting for our guests to eat? How are we going to keep things moving through the walk-in without losing them? How are we going to um, use up the product that's still sitting in the walk-in from uh, two weeks ago when we had this new shiny object? Um, it's you know, maybe looking back to what we did last year um, when we first started seeing these things is a little bit helpful. But what about challenging ourselves to do something new? Um, is our team going to be ready? All of these other things are kind of the swirling of uh, you were just mentioning training and um, working with a new team. Like that's exciting. But, you know, fear as excitement without the breath. This is a time of like that transitional fear. Um, and it, it is exciting. 
but in a terrifying way. Right. I've never heard it said like that before, <laughs> but I, I'm getting what you're saying. Do you do you feel like you cook differently in spring than than in other seasons? I, I always cook pretty light, um, but um, yeah, I think that you know you're tied to what is now you're constantly tied to what is now and when you're when you're walking out of your apartment and you feel like this particular energy um you want to eat that you want to cook that particular type of energy it's not again a braise and it's not um it's not strawberries it's really what's what's current um that gets you excited or gets me excited to to share different kinds of ideas that are really tied to now you just brought up the question of, you know, wanting to do something new. How much do you um, lean on sort of things from your repertoire that you've done in the past? Uh, like, are there things like, okay, you know, in any given season, like, okay, now we're in X season, these two or three things, they're coming back. You know, they're just, they're sort of automatically in rotation, I guess you'd call it. Um, or do you try not to do that? Are there things, I mean, you're only about a year in, yeah. but like, do you feel like you have things going into your second spring into your second summer after that that you know customers really dug that you feel like you know these things are coming back and then the rest of it'll be well we'll see what happens i think yeah i i'm excited to bring certain things back there are particular salads or particular ways that we treated ingredients that i'm excited to play with but it's always you know when i when i pull that thing out it gives me a new idea when I look at that particular dish that we did maybe last year, when I try it, you know, if we are cheating the corner a little bit and pulling out something for, you know, from some kind of a California ingredient that we can, we can do a little bit of development on. Um, if we try that out now and it sparks a new interest, um, maybe we migrate a little bit. Maybe we evolve what that dish was um, into something that's a little bit brighter, a little cleaner, a little fresher, um, and a little bit more appropriate for, for this season as opposed to last season right what would be an example of something that you're just like itching to get back onto the menu um there was an, a, a shaved asparagus salad with burrata last year that we did that was really fun um it tortured my cooks to no end to be um doing a fine well doing a, a fine julienne of asparagus raw um dressing it lightly serving it with some beautiful burrata and um it was just a really refreshing, bright, crunchy uh, kind of a spring salad. Um, I'm excited to, to take that and to play with it um, as something that's new. Um, mm -hmm. That's the that's the first thing that comes to mind. There are definitely pastas that we're playing with right now that um, will be showcases for new ingredients or um, different cooking of different ingredients. I'm I'm excited to see what what comes our way. Yeah, Amanda, what about the question of sourcing? How does that change as we go into the spring and summer? Um, here in the Northeast, especially, is there a big shift that happens in how you go about um, sourcing? And I mean, obviously, you could point to things like the farmers market uh, here in New York, which is kind of you know a, a wasteland in the winter. Um, and then we come into this season where all of a sudden it just explodes in this region where we are. Uh, but how does that the sort of makeup of where you get your stuff uh, change throughout the year? I'm pretty lazy, so <laughs> I just use the same purveyors over and over again, and they write me emails and say, "Hey, this is what we have available." Um, I, I mean, yeah, I wish I had a better answer. Really, I'm lazy. I have four or five purveyors that I love who know me, who know what I like, and they're like, oh, this is finally back in season. Here we have it. Um, yeah, I, I don't go out looking for new people. They come to me. So uh -huh. I'm, I have a big restaurant. They find me. But in general, we just stick with the same people. Uh-huh. 
Well, I was going to say, I think uh, it's pretty cool, though, when you connect, you know, the forager that you talk to who you haven't heard from in six or seven months is all of a sudden like, hey, you know, I'm I'm going up to I'm going up to Massachusetts this weekend or whatever. You want me to take a look for some morels for you or something like that. And all of a sudden you're talking to that old friend again. And, that you know, so for me, it's like people come out of the come out of hiding, you know, at the farmer's market. You mentioned it's kind of a it's kind of a no man's land in the winter. And all of a sudden, just the 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 booths are more bountiful and you start to see you get a real sense of how everybody is now reacting to the change of the season and how everybody's kind of gathering around and getting excited about what they have regardless of what you're going to do at the restaurant you start to see you know the way that people walk through a park and see life <laughs> starting to grow on trees you see it right. happen with people and with the relationships that you have with people so you know if you go see rick bishop at mountain sweetberry and all of a sudden you can talk to him again about the ramp the ramp seed pods that you were looking for last year you know it's a it's a it's revisiting old friends almost I right think. Yeah. um and it's not just about the ingredients themselves i think the people are involved too which is pretty cool for me right it was a funny year though just to be fair my i do have a forager who i use um but she because it was such a weird winter we actually didn't see her for three weeks so i i spoke to her she well, came into the restaurant it was just a weird year and we're already back for yeah, because it. it was so unseasonably yeah. warm and we had almost no snow and- yeah so there was only i mean she wasn't necessarily getting the greenest stuff but she was like oh yeah i have this weird weed do you want it i was like sure i'll take the weird weed i think i'm the only person who keeps saying yes um but yeah because it was a really really strange up and down winter so there was always little things coming through it. but she has finally actually found some really fun green stuff for us um, I was all that reminds me. I feel like you know it's it's interesting the way that especially in the spring because the ma- market is so much more bountiful. You start to use the market and the vegetables that are available as like a meteorological view of the entire world of this area, and it really puts you in touch with. Uh, your surroundings a lot more than I think other people. You're like the farmer literally is not pulling this out of the ground yet, or the, you know there was yeah. a late frost, so ramps came really late, and then all of a sudden it's June. You have ramps, and then every year becomes this like almanac of the weather that it, for me creates an interesting relationship and makes the job, you know, gives the job a nuance that I think a lot of people don't don't you know comprehend or see or understand or anticipate uh that just adds it's like one of those secret rewards i think that you have in a restaurant that you know it's just a little piece of joy that you can get when you're like oh this year i can tell you all about the weather last year because this is when this is when we got strawberries and this is how long they lasted and this this past winter was warm and i know that not because i went outside very much because i was in a hot kitchen the whole time but i know that it was warm because we had this particular product so late so that to me is always pretty cool and i think it's a weird thing on the part of sort of like the media and the guests because they do hear oh spring march 20th march 21st and there's this idea that, oh, everything is available all at once. Like, the ground has just opened up, and there are your asparagus and peas, and it's all here. And the truth is, that's not how growing season works. Right. You know, it sort of trickles out slowly. Um, but it is interesting to see it through sort of the eyes of the forager, who we've just gotten these um, amazing daylily shoots, which I've never had before. And we explain it to the guests, and we're like, this is literally the first thing that has grown out of the ground. Like, this is it. This is telling you spring. Not asparagus, not peas. This is the first true sign of spring. And you're using those for the first time? Yeah. What are you, can I ask, what are you doing with them? Well, I have no idea what to do with them. So I, Oh, you literally <laughs> just got them. Yeah, well, we started selling them last night, but we're grilling them. They're like a cross between, they taste like a cross between green beans and artichokes. But they kind of look like ramps. They're amazing. But I, I never know what to do with this. I'm right. not a forager. Right. And I'm, so she's sure. like, grill what, it. What are they called? Uh, they're the shoots of daylilies. 
the flower. Wow, nice. So we're talking about green markets and we're talking about seasons and sub-seasons and, and things like that. And obviously this is a pretty local conversation. But I guess my question is, how about first crop things coming out of California now? And would you use them? Do you use them uh, along those lines? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't believe in this sort of only being local and seasonal. We try our best to stay as seasonal as possible, but yeah, absolutely. Right. So do you, do you look for things like artichokes or, uh, you know, first crop asparagus or garlic that are, that are coming out of California? Yeah, I also have some white asparagus from France. It's delicious. Uh, Definitely nice. not local. <laughs> but it is seasonal somewhere. Right. How about uh, you, Gabe? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think it's it's important to um, tie yourself to place and time, but also respect the fact that this is, this is a, a more complex web than just um, being about exclusive local um, food. You know, we we're getting lemons all year round. Um, you know, sometimes we're getting things that are, um, you know, if we're out of something, if we're gapping on something at the green market here, we can sort of fill in from somebody a little further afield during a season. Um, I just said before, you know, it's it's important for us to to kind of cheat that corner on development work. You know, if we're going to be developing a dish, it's not, it's really nice to have something that's a little bit ahead. Um, we're using nettles right now coming from the West Coast. Um, that's going into um, a couple of different things at the restaurant right now and has been there for a little while. Um, the reason that I tell myself that that's okay is because it feels right. It feels right to have that flavor, to have that texture, to have that um, kind of energy where it does not feel right to have morels. It does not feel right to have something that's a little bit, um, you know, more. It doesn't feel right to have rhubarb here, but it does feel right to bring West Coast wild mushrooms. It does feel right to bring Oro Blancos. It does feel right to bring things that are, um, you know, that are citrus that are growing way far away um that feels somehow more honest to me that is an important part of how we tell our story what do, can you just expand on that a little bit um and also i'd love to know the way you kind of tiptoed into answering that question do you feel like this whole topic is something that gets sort of oversimplified you know in the press or in the in the public's understanding of it you know when you said you know i, I try to tell myself it's okay to do you know i feel like that echoes uh, or responds almost by implication to the way people, the way casual observers talk about this topic of stay, you know, being local. Sure. You know, I think th th there are a lot of people that are, um, that are probably a lot more articulate than I can be on this. But um, if you hold yourself religiously to being local, you limit your ability to relate to your guests, to, to find the pleasure in cooking. It, it's an experiment. I mean, food could be very, very intellectually driven. And to drive yourself to do um, exclusively local food is a very, very high calling. But it's hard to make money doing that. And we are all in this as a business. This is not, you know, this is not a charity. This is not, um, a, you know, I'm not writing grants to have the Finch operate day to day to day. Right. I wish I could. I think that would help us a lot. And we could pay our right. cooks a lot more money. And we could charge a lot less for our food. Yeah. But what, what I feel people are, like, we have never come out and said we are a local seasonal um, restaurant. That we, we are this, um, we don't put a stamp on the food that we do. 
but we convey, I hope, a sense of honesty and connection to where we are at a given time. And that means following what it feels like to find food um, in our part of the world. Yeah. If people then free associate like, oh, this place is about what's local. Great. I, I would love for people to take that on and, and I will lead them very willingly by the nose to in, into that. Um, but I feel like people are are so happy to kind of champion those causes when they're not really getting things that are local. They're putting things on their menus that are like, you know, from Mexico. And it's not it's not it's not really from here. And that's fine. It's it's fine to use food that's not from here. Like, great, great, do it. But don't lie about it. Yeah. Or don't mislead your guests. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You know, I just feel like this has always been the truth uh, in the industry. And I'm I'm writing about the 70s and 80s at the moment. And, you know, there are people who are deeply associated with, you know, the California movement. Michael McCarty is probably the big one who never made any bones about the fact that he was going to get the best of whatever he needed if that meant getting it from somewhere else in the U.S. or, you know, outside the country. Um, It was just a fact of life, and I feel like that's never really changed. But it is interesting the way, um, I think, again, the way the casual observers, I think, understand that topic. Mike, you look like you have something to... Yeah, I I feel like it's it's interesting, just even in this sort of uh, loving circle that we're in right now, (laughs) that... It, almost the way your question is phrased and almost the way the responses are phrased, we feel uh, or our instinct is to be apologetic about the fact that we're not using local things. Yeah. And there's some there's some great beauty in using local things and, and restricting yourself in that way. But to, let's be honest, there aren't too many things that are actually <clears> – <throat> excuse me, actually from here. So is it really just a vain project to try and do that? Why do we sweep under the rug the fact that we're importing this like sustainably or responsibly uh, gathered food from someplace else that's really in peak season and that in some way contributes to the economy over there? There's literally, not only is there not anything wrong with doing that, but I I also think there can be some great benefit to being aware of what's available throughout the entire world and when and sharing it with as many people as you possibly yeah. can. I wasn't miswriting, misreading the vibe, was I? Like, I was picking up what you were... No, I mean, we're all saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But we no all one's... use what we can. We uh, try our best. Right. I, I mean, I wrote an article about this, so right. I wish oh, all of you were tomatoes. there defending yes, me. <laughs> I wrote you. I wrote you. Um, you know, I'm the one who got, like, 500 backlash comments from the New York Times. Your was like, you suck. Um, Mine you know. was your great. I know. So. Um, you know, Gabe, you mentioned the money part of the local. Uh, but, what, you know, what about the, the creative freedom? You know, and also, Mike, you mentioned, you know, the, the local thing. Like, I saw somebody last night with Bronzino and local ramps, you know, on the menu, just written like that. So is it where's the where's the factor of the personal freedom and creativity come into it versus the, the local aspect? That's a great question. I think it has to do with everybody individually. Yeah. You know, what what is your mission at your restaurant at that time? If you're writing a menu that's trying to focus on venison, great. If you're trying to, to focus your energy on doing something that's all, you know, it's a 100-mile menu and you're trying to bring everything in, that's great. But if your guests are coming to you for a certain type of experience, that's your contract, that's your relationship with them. If your if your tone is this, and you're doing something that's um, that's respecting that, that's the kind of honesty that I think really allows us to build a little bit more. Pulling food that's from a different part of the world that's 
fantastic and and beautiful and full of great energy is i think what gets us most excited about and i mean again to kind of come back to it i'm scared about what to do how to honor that food it's like it's a it's a beautiful beautiful opportunity when we look at it right but if we're um if we're missing those opportunities i don't know i feel like we're missing out on um we're missing our, our, our opportunity to connect with our guests. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Okay. Thank you. Um, we're going to take a short break. We're here talking with uh, chefs Amanda Cohen, Mike Gibney, and Gabe McMacken. And the front burner with Jimmy and Andrew. We'll be back right after this break. Today's program was brought to you by the Nutritional Therapy Association. The Nutritional Therapy Association, NTA, is a vocational nutrition school that develops, trains, and certifies nutritional therapy practitioners and nutritional therapy consultants to understand and reverse the tragic and unsuspected effects of the modern diet on their clients based on their bio-individual nutritional needs. There's no perfect diet for everyone. Their philosophy is that the myriad of health problems that plague modern society result from weakness in the body's physiological foundations as a result of poor nutrition and that everyone deserves to be healthy. Throughout NTA seminars, students access a wide range of educational tools and techniques that help identify and correct nutritional imbalances from a holistic perspective, emphasizing the importance of properly prepared, nutrient-dense whole foods. Their organization was founded on the teachings of Weston A. Price and the science of Dr. Francis M. Pottinger. For more information, visit nutritionaltherapy.com. Welcome back to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. We're talking about uh, spring and the coming of spring in restaurants and kitchens with chefs Amanda Cohen, Mike Gibney, and Gabe McMacken. Um, Mike, I just wanted to come back. We were talking. You were talking about foragers just a minute ago. Can you just? It, it can be just in the you know briefest of sketchiest of terms. But uh, I'd love for you to just explain a little how that relationship for you anyway with a forager. You know uh, that ter- that term. It's actually people have been using foragers in a much more limited way for decades uh, in places in this country. Um, but it's really become sort of in vogue lately. It's something that uh, again one of these words that's sort of out there. But I don't know how much people really get it. Like what's the What's the sort of nature of that symbiotic relationship and the back and forth? I mean, for me personally, it's been here's someone who actually forages in the wild, and I happen to have that person's cell phone number, and I send that person a text message or maybe join that person in the wild when when possible. And then what he or she brings out, I get a text message back or a call back or they stop by the restaurant and say, here, look, check this out. This is what I got. Interesting thing about the forager relationship, though, is that it's not the doesn't work the way a purveyor works because they only can pull a certain amount of things out. And they have a bunch of friends who are eager to get those things. So you find yourself, you know, it's it's. It's an interesting look at uh, supply and demand and the way that like a sort of capitalist economy works because this, the forager 
it, you know, it's not, it's, it's often a personal relationship, but really at the end of the day, it's all right, who's going to buy, who's, who can I unload all this stuff on? So the forager and, you know, Jimmy had just mentioned during the break, uh, the farmer kind of can act as your forager. You say, Hey, you know, are you getting these garlic scapes or can I, can I, can I take this part of the plant that you're not bringing to the market, but you obviously have because you grow it on your farm. Uh, it's about, it's a lot about developing those, those personal relationships. And, and then really at the end of the day, it often comes down to, the forager, in my experience, sometimes saying, okay, well, you know, I got this thing and then this, you know, it got a lot of press at this restaurant or this person treated it really well and made this awesome dish with it. So as much more of that as I can get in their hands, I will. And it's, it's, it's always been a kind of tricky relationship. For me, I think going, taking a trip on a foraging mission is most likely to get you foraged goods when they come around, you know, the next week or whatever. Because just because of the bonding nature of the trip or because what is it about going out on that? Is there something for you that's edifying as a chef um, to go on that trip or what do you get out of that? Well, certainly. Yeah. I think personally you understand just a little bit better what, what the food actually is and where it comes from. Uh, and you understand its surroundings, so you can pro- probably better create a dish around it or or, or highlight it to, to its greatest extent. But then also, I think on a personal level, it's just like anything else. If somebody if somebody feels like, like you understand what their mission is and what work they put into it, um, you're, you're sort of a teammate or a partner in crime with that person. And I think that, you know, in a restaurant, having that relationship and having that trust... Um, is is extremely powerful not just with your with your purveyors but i think a lot with your clientele with your with your cooks with the staff it's all about you know as, as gabe has been touching on this honesty and i think you know honestly knowing and caring about what what you're feeding people what pe- where it, where it's coming from how the diner is experiencing how the guest is experiencing the room that is really our stock and trade and the more you can do that on every level of the chain i think the better off you, your restaurant ends up being it's like qualifying yourself, you know. Uh, somebody has to want to sell you the good stuff, you know. How do you get them yeah. to sell you the good stuff? You hang out it's, with them. It's very true. I, uh, I uh, earlier or this past year, I took a trip down to South America, and uh, I was I was cooking a, a welcome dinner for a wedding of a friend of mine, and uh, they wanted me to help cook the pig, and I had to sort of I had to sort of go through boot camp, and I had to go up into these into the mountains, uh, you know, these, into the Andes, 100 miles outside the city, and stab a pig in the chest with a screwdriver with this farmer in order to kind of get on that person's side, and that was a really traumatic experience for me, but it was also really enriching. And the next day at the party, all the line cooks and or whatever you want to call them from Colombia that were that came out to, to help cook this thing were all on my side, and it was and it was it's almost like you know it's it's a it's a proving ground wow, yeah. goosebumps where's yeah. the discovery channel when you need them <laughs> that was well, like you could have had a show well, yeah <laughs> fingers crossed for the future <laughs> hopefully i don't have to kill any more animals but With i mean a screwdriver it, i think yeah. that's a good part of the story right, the exactly. screwdriver. Yeah. yeah well that was the that was because i i thought the pig phillips was just head or flat it was actually it was a it was a it was a file that had just filed been, down yeah exactly. <laughs> it was a shank but uh you know that it, what and to be honest, that ended up being the most delicious pig that I've ever eaten. And it was, it was, 
the, that bonding experience is a layer of flavor, I think. And it may, this may be corny and may sound, I may sound like a total jerk on the radio right now, but I do think that there's something really important about, um, getting your hands dirty and understanding and just experiencing as much as possible. And that, that really does translate onto the plate. The amount that you, the, the amount that you give a shit is really obvious on the plate, I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're departing a little bit from spring, but to, I guess maybe bring it back. That relationship you have with that forager going out and getting your fingers in the dirt uh, with a farmer proves to them how much you care. And then they care the stuff that they care about, they give to you. And then you and all your cooks in your kitchen, you put all this care into the food and you end up with just a superior product, I think. Just to not disagree, because I agree, you have to you have to make these relationships, but because I don't want to see every now chef out there foraging with some like weird forager that they've never met before. <laughs> you can also just be nice. <laughs> like I've never been foraging with right. Tama, who's my forager, but we're really nice. We have a great relationship. We also get really good stuff. Right. Did you, you know. find your forager or did your forager find you? She picked me. There you go. See, <laughs> That's the but we have a reputation huh, for being an exceptionally nice restaurant. And she was like, I really want to work with you. Um, I'll, I'll add, she's exceptionally nice. She is. She's very, very nice. <laughs> and her product is is very, very good. Yes. I don't know if she actually takes people foraging with her. She's pretty secretive about where she goes. Right. There's and a lot know, of competition these there's days. There's a lot of, it seems like what we're talking about a lot here is produce and vegetables, but you know, you can, you can forage for anything. Like the, the first experience I ever had was a young cook in Rhode Island guy knocking on your back door, you buy my lobsters and I'll take the meat out of the shell for you for free. You know, <laughs> like excellent. <Yeah. laughs> or the, the boats pull up to the dock and, um, the bycatch the captain just puts on a table and you walk up and you take some of that and some of that. And so, uh, you know, you can really forge for anything, yeah. right? What, one thing that I was going to say is that um, I think people are also starting to pay attention to, which is great, how not to forage. You know, if you are going and like clear cutting ramps. And- yeah, like those guys <laughs> digging ginseng down south, right? Yeah. Can you define that for people who are listening? Clear that term you just used, clean cutting ramps. Yeah. So if you're if you find this patch of ramps in your backyard, and you know I don't know where you live, but if you um, just pull them out, pull them all out of the ground, they're not coming back. There's a way that they grow. There's a way that anything grows. And if you do not respect the way that those things grow, if you haven't, you know, if you just get this bug in your, you know, that you want to go and grab these things that you find out there without respecting how um, they replenish themselves year after year, then they're gone. And I think that people are starting to really talk about that um, in a careful way. And it's very exciting to see. As much as, um, you know, it is great to be able to go out with, um, you know, all of your cooks and all of your buddies and kind of walk around in the woods and see what you can find. Um, it's it's a skill. It's a very, very long and hard crafted skill to yeah, be able to do this. It's something that the, the farming industry is known forever in the foraging community, you know partially ignores you don't grow the same crops on the same soil you rotate your your crops in your soil and then you have a certain way that you do it um in order for it to provide for you the best it can and you know to your point you just can't go take everything there is and expect there to be more stuff next time you arrive yeah the the other thing you know we're sitting we're sitting at roberta's and you know I, i i remember um however many years ago this was having somebody come through the door and be like hey 
I foraged for this lamb's quarter down the street. <laughs> no, thank you. Cool. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'll leave that with you. You know, there are people that come through the door um, at any restaurant that are that are probably very nice that bring you things that are toxic. You know, that bring you things that are from the median and the highway. That bring you things that are just not. Um, not what I think of as safe to eat. They might taste good, but maybe they're full of metals. Like if you're growing something in your soil that um, is in your backyard in Bushwick, where the fires kind of burn down every building and all of the metals and all of the garbage that was, um, you know, in these kind of crappy buildings that were in here are in the soil right now, you probably shouldn't be eating it. But if you're bringing in new soil, it's totally different. Um, what What is really wonderful about the people that are coming through restaurants right now as foragers is that they are responsibly ethically and carefully finding things um, and bringing them to us that's brilliant what about and last thing maybe on this point but I, I am interested in how do these how do you and it could be foragers or it could be farmers um, how important is it um, that and how is it uh, accomplished that they sort of get to know who you guys are on the like on the plate, like what your style is? Like, do you make a point of having these people in for a meal? Do you talk to them about um, what it is that just really excites you? Um, what your can you communicate your style in a conversation, and then have them you know come to you? And again, I say farmers. I know farmers might do this also. Like, I'm trying to grow this new type <laughs> of carrot this year, or this new type of whatever this year. How is it accomplished that? these people can really um, come to you with things that they know you'll be excited about and that maybe you'll want to use it in a certain way? Uh, most often they come for dinner first and they're like, oh, I like your style. I think we can you know, work something <laughs> up, which is what uh, Tama did with me. And then I have a couple of other uh, farmers who grow specific things for me who are like, yeah, you know, I can do this. And we talk about how much product I can get for them, whether or not I can use it. And we go tumbles out from there. Are these people who, as far as you know, do a fair amount of cooking themselves or they just sort of understand uh, uh, they, they're around chefs enough that they can sort of pick up on that just. Well, it goes a couple of different ways. Um, I think they uh, when I use smaller farmers, they want me to put their name out there. So and talk about them and be like, oh, you know, I'm getting such and such a vegetable from such and such a farmer. And that really helps grow their business. So that's one part of the deal. And then with somebody else like the forager, she's just really excited to, you know, have me use her stuff. And we did talk about how I was going to use it. And I'm using it very differently than anybody else. And so that for her is really exciting. Um, I would make a whole forager salad. So whatever she brings me for the week goes into one salad. And she's like, oh, this is this really natural way of serving it. And most other people do like a little puree or, you know, it's a little garnish on a plate. She's like, I've never seen everything i every single thing she brings goes into one plate that's great yeah, so that's how we sort of started this relationship right how about gabe mike and i mean how do you how do you go about accomplishing getting the most out of that relationship well i think it's good to avoid when the relationship becomes about m- your own money or fame you know there are some there are some farmers i mean this is kind of a dark reality is that there are some places particularly those that aren't necessarily local and to to the union square green market let's say but you know there are farmers who come out and if you're getting if you're like getting their their goods shipped in on dry ice three times a week to the tune of five or six grand a week they'll come out and see you and say hello and invite you to the farm or if you have you know you just got your second or third michelin star or something they'll come out and say hello and i think it's often for me personally 
and I think probably just better for restaurants in general, um, good to instead meet the, meet the people and discuss and, you know, make a plate that actually highlights their ingredients. And, and when it's not about, yeah, just, you know, it's good to mention them on a menu. I think it's good to give credit where credit is due, but I think it's, it's better when the relationship is like, here, let me feed you. You know, I used to have a fishmonger, this Greek dude named Mitro who used to just bring me, you know, he'd go out on a fishing boat out of Long Island and bring me a striped bass and he'd be like, just take it. I don't care. I just want to come in and eat a piece of it later. And so that relationship was born out of how much respect I showed for the fish when it ended up on the plate for him. And to me, you know, Mitro would never stop giving me whatever fish he caught, whatever he pulled out of the water, whether it was a 200 pound red drum fish or some shit that I could barely use. Um, it was always about here, you know, this guy, this guy cares, uh, you know, and I think that that, that to me is, has been the way, particularly with foragers because of the, the competition that they have with competing foragers and the competition that restaurants have trying to get them in. It's most about how you can, uh, demonstrate your respect for not only their craft but also the product that they're providing you with. So when it becomes about money and, and stuff like that, and I'm not going to name any names, but there are certain farmers that you see at the James Beard Awards, yeah. and you're just like, come on, man, you should be back tending the crops. Like, what are you doing here? Um, and so I think steering clear of that uh, that kind of relationship is is always best for me. But it is, a, it is a reality, though. It's a financial reality. If you're only buying it once or twice a month and you're only getting, you know, two pounds of this, then it's the, so it's this, it's this balance I think you have to strike. Yeah, but if you had the personal relationship with that person. They'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, even, so. even some of the big, you know, some of the just purveyors. Forget farmers and foragers, just purveyors. If you have a good relationship with them personally, usually they have dollar signs in their eyes. But if you have a good relationship and you can text the guy and say, hey, I need, I need two pounds of scallops tomorrow, yeah. right. they'll, be, they'll drive it over that night for you personally that's what i mean about qualifying yourself you yeah know, it's not it shouldn't be about just how much you can buy and how much you spend but if you find a way to have a personal relationship you'll, you'll probably have that relationship forever. i swear being nice just gets you everything yeah. if you're just i mean yeah we've always had this sort of at the restaurant and so anytime we order something even when we're angry and we're like i can't believe you didn't bring this we're like i'm so sorry but we need this or and we just start the conversation and our purveyors have been really good to us before that and you're usually like oh my goodness you're the nicest restaurant ever although i think they say that to everybody right <laughs> it is funny though you know mike when i heard you know when you were just talking it is i mean i've been lucky to be around sometimes uh, for whatever reason in a restaurant when a, a forager comes by or or someone comes from a farm or and and it does. It is often. I guess it's the foods. The, the food is the uh, connection. Is is the is the current right that runs between you all. But um, it sounds like you said before. I don't want to sound corny about it. But there does seem to be. You know, uh, you guys have different relationships with the food. But that does seem to be this thing that really kind of binds you guys to get people who are in it for the right reason. I guess like people who are into cook who took up cooking because they love to cook and love the food and all these, again, probably what may sound like cliches, and the people who are growing it and uh, who have a real passion for that. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to use this opportunity to plug the restaurant, but there's an <laughs> anecdote that's actually perfect here. This guy, uh, Carlo, out at La Pera Poultry, uh, who whacks chickens to order, basically, for you, and... At our restaurant, we take those chickens, these specific chickens. We get a bunch of them from every week. Uh, we take them and we and we treat them through this four day process that that results in this you know roast chicken that people write write uh, long glittering reviews about. Uh, 
not to I'm not trying the point that I'm trying to make is that there are other restaurants that probably get more chickens from him than we do but because of the how elaborate our process is how much we actually care about his chickens that he's personally excited about he sees that in us and he's always stopping by the restaurant saying you guys need more chickens you know <laughs> and and it's not it's not <clears throat> it's not in the interest of him selling us more chickens he's just excited that we're so excited about the product that he's sending text messages calling just to say hello see how we are and yeah. this is the kind of guy you know when i first called him uh to set up an account years and years ago restaurants and restaurants ago i was like hey you know what do you do for the credit application he's like he's like uh i bring you chickens and if you don't pay for them i cap your knees um (laughs) we're not maybe not that quite but that's the kind of guy he is it's it's all about the trust that you can have with the person and how much you know and if you go out there you you can definitely go out and, and watch them and pick your chickens and they also have rabbits and pigeons and all these different things you can pick them out and what he's there Sometimes he's killing the birds himself, and other times he's just like cooking up the meat and passing it around because he loves this product that he has. So when he sees, uh, you know, an equal amount of love being put into the preparation of it at a restaurant, he that's the that's the place that 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 purveyor that that farmer forager whoever is going to go. I think uh, you can't you can't be a great cook without great ingredients, right? Very true. Okay. Um, we have just a couple of minutes here. Um, I'm just curious if anybody, you know, one of the things for us uh, going into this season and into the summer behind it, you know, that always seems to come to mind, Jimmy and I were talking, was, you know, travel on the horizon and, and how you use travel um, as, uh, you know, ideas growing out of travel, ideas that come up, whether it's from going to another country or another state or another city. Uh, and having the experience of that place just very broadly, uh, or eating on the road, you know, going to another big city and kind of ex- seeing what's going on in that city and maybe coming back with the kind of the germ of an idea. Um, Amanda, are you, wh- how, does this, how does this all work for you, and what do you have coming up? Uh, I have a bunch of trips planned, mostly to Canada over the next while, uh, one for a conference in Toronto called Terroir, and another one in Tofino and Vancouver, or uh, British Columbia, and... I love doing this traveling now. One, it gets me away from the restaurant, which just gets me out of my head there to the daily rut of it. Uh, You get to meet great people, and you do. You get to see what other people are cooking, and it's not the same from city to city, country to country. Um, Oftentimes, you don't get to go out and eat as much as you want to because you're sort of part of these conferences, but you get to meet people, and then they invite you to their restaurant to go cook it there. And so being able to make these relationships outside of New York City is so important it really gets you out of your head of what's happening in this tiny little microcosm of the world does that do you feel like it's especially useful coming from new york i mean i've i've never cooked in a professional (laughs) kitchen but i have often thought um you know this is you know a concrete jungle that we're in here um you know stuff is grown for the i mean there's rooftop gardens and people have their herb gardens and things like this but you know for the most part things are coming from you know certain distance outside of the island uh, of manhattan and the other boroughs um does it help you creatively does it sort of put a little more oxygen in your creative mind to get to some place that's a little more connected to nature to, yeah yeah well it not only gets me out of my the rut that I have here, but I mean, it makes me really jealous when I go to other cities because everything we're sort of talking about here, sort of making these connections with the farmers and the foragers, it happens more naturally there. It's a smaller community. You know more people. Everybody, you know the other chefs. It's easier. Um, I mean, that's sort of been my experience. And it, 
you're just like, wow, why can't I do this here? And it actually makes me sort of come back here every time and be like, let's be nicer. Let's find more people. Let's connect more. You know, let's meet more chefs who are even in our neighborhood. You know, when you see these communities that are are really a community, we talk about New York City as this community, but I don't think it is. But when I travel outside of it, Toronto or Calgary or Vancouver, really, it is these these are communities, and it's amazing to see. I'm always like, why can't we do this here? You know, it's funny. I, years ago, um, uh, well, you were there. We were there together this year. Jimmy and I did it a couple of times. We were at the uh, Wani Hotel right. in Yosemite for this event called Chef's Holiday. And years ago, I was there, and the weeks are split into two sessions. And the first half of the week were three chefs from California. And the second half of the week were three chefs from New York. No offense. You were one of them, Jimmy. <laughs> and so on Wednesday morning... Uh, the chefs from California are having kind of their last breakfast and getting ready to drive home, and the New York chefs are arriving. So I was at a table having my last sort of hangout with the California chefs, and the, the three New Yorkers were at another table, and one of the chefs from California leaned over to me, and what they were doing at the time was they were all giving each other purveyor information. They were sharing purveyors with each other. Right. And one of the California chefs said to me, he's in San Francisco, said... Uh, and he pointed to the New Yorkers and said, I'll tell you the difference between New York and San Francisco. You won't see this happening in New York. You won't see it. And to me, that kind of blew my mind. But I did. As soon as I got home, I asked a few people <laughs> and they were all like, yeah, you know, I want you said it on the show a few weeks, Jimmy. Like, you don't even like necessarily to advertise these people on your menu because it's, you go to a lot of trouble to have these relationships. And sometimes the product is limited and you want to you want to have it for yourself. I mean, at some level. Yeah. Um, I'll share my purveyors with anybody. But I will say that the other thing with traveling outside... Just not your forager. <laughs> she won't share herself. It's not me. I tell everybody it's uh, Tama Matsuoko Wong, but she's like, don't call me. Um, I also try to share my general contractor with everybody, and he's like, I'm not taking on any other clients. Uh, the other plus about traveling uh, for me is it's it's this amazingly like humbling experience. Uh, it's amazing going into another kitchen that's not yours and being like, wow, I am like an intern. I'm the biggest jackass in this like kitchen, and I don't know where to put my, the dirty dishes. Like you just you feel so stupid when you walk into a new kitchen, um, and that for me every time I go back to my kitchen, I'm always like, okay, we have to be really nice to the interns. They feel so dumb when they walk in, yeah. and we're so mean to them because we're like, why don't you know this yet? Uh, and so I keep talking about this with my staff. I'm like, no, even I'm the one who's like, how do I work this like food processor? Why isn't the lid going on? Great. Thank you. Um, we'd like to thank our guests from today, Amanda Cohen from Dirt Candy in New York City, Mike Gibney, author of Sous Chef and currently in the kitchen at La Turtle in New York, and Gabe McMacken of The Finch in Brooklyn. Please support all those restaurants. Um, next week will be our last show of this, uh, our first season. And, uh, We're kind of psyched, Jimmy. We're going to have, next week, Food & Wine announces their best new chefs. And we're going to have new editor-in-chief, Nilu Mutamid, here in the studio. And I guess we're not allowed to say too much about it, but there will be, the the class of 2016 will be represented on next week's show. Yeah, it's going to be a really good one. Yeah, we don't know who they are, so nobody, don't call us because we don't know. We just know. It's a near and dear topic. We just know they'll be represented. But, um, you know, and I don't know if people know this, but that, there's so many awards these days and so many this and that, but that... Uh, Best New Chefs is one of the first of its kind I think programs. It started in 1988. Yeah, 88 or 87. Yeah. Uh, Keller and Belude were in the first class. It's it's got a long history. We'll talk and about some good picks. Yeah, so we'll talk about that uh, along with uh, along with uh, what's you know this year's class and what 
observations we can draw from this year's class. That'll be next week. Uh, we'd like to thank our engineer, David Tadasor, and Storefront Music for our theme song, Heavy Metal Gumbo. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can find us on at Chef Podcast or on Facebook at The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. And that's it for this week. I'm Andrew Friedman. I'm Jimmy Bradley. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.